We're going to be in Romans chapter 3 today. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn there with me. But before we uh, jump into the, the scriptures, kids, on your activity sheets, there are uh, a handful of questions for you to answer as you listen to the sermon today. And the first one of those I want us to uh, answer together this morning. And that first question is this. If someone were to come and to tell you, I've got good news and bad news to give to you, oh, which would you want to receive first and why? Good news or bad news? Which would you run to receive first and why? I'm going to go uh, west back there. Good news first. Why is that? Still deciding. That's okay. Good news first. Emery, what about you? Bad news because you want to get the worst out of the way first. Any other answers from the kids? That's okay. We're going to take an all-church survey this morning because I'm curious. Uh, everybody, if you had to receive good news and bad news, would you rather receive good news first or bad news first? Show of hands if you'd rather have good news first. A smattering of you, a couple. Raise your hand if you'd like to see, get the bad news first. Yes. So you are proving out. There was even a stand-up. Uh, 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 so strongly prefers the bad news first that they were out of their seat. You know, it's actually scientifically proven uh, that if you have good, if you have to give good news and bad news to someone, that we prefer to share the good news first because we think it will soften the blow of the bad news that we also have to give. But if you have to receive good news and bad news, we prefer as humans to receive the bad news first. Because if you know bad news is coming, you can't appreciate or focus on uh, the good news that's currently being delivered. So, so our instincts are actually opposite on this. We want to give good news first, but we want to receive bad news first. All that's a way to just say, remember, uh, if you ever have good news and bad news to give to someone, give them the bad news first, even if it's difficult, because that's what the people want. <clears throat> And in the book of Romans, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul has done for us. If you recall, when we began this sermon series, we did so by focusing on Paul's emphasis that this letter that he has written is the gospel of God. He said it is, that it is God's good news concerning his son, Jesus. So Paul opened this letter by telling us that he has good news to share with us. But if you've been here the past couple of weeks, you've probably realized that as soon as we got out of the introduction, Paul hasn't given us very much good news. In fact, for the past two weeks, it's been the exact opposite. Two weeks ago, Eric taught us from the end of Romans chapter 1 about how the wrath of God was being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And he showed us how the blatantly immoral were under the judgment of God as God handed them over to their sinful desires of their hearts as a consequence of their rejection of him. And then last week, Jim showed us how it wasn't just the immoral who live wild and blatantly sinful lives that are under the judgment of God, but that the moral and ethical and conscientious person who knows right from wrong and who tries to do right Well, they are under God's judgment as well. 
And Paul's argument harkened back to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus made clear that obedience to God isn't just about the outward adherence to the letter of his law, but it was about the inner heart obedience to even the spirit of his law as well. So Jesus makes clear it's not simply enough to not murder someone. But he says that if you even have an angry thought towards someone, you are liable for judgment. And so Paul's argument was that even the morally upright who know right from wrong and, and judge and condemn wrong in the world, they themselves are guilty of violating the very same laws because of their attitudes and their thoughts and their hearts. And then Paul took his argument even a step further. And said that it wasn't just the Gentiles, whether the wild and crazy or the morally upright, who were under God's judgment for having broken his laws, but that the Jews were as well. And then he showed how the Jewish people, despite the fact that God had given them his laws, and despite the fact that God had given them the sign of his covenant promise, And despite the fact that they had been chosen out of all of the people of the earth to be God's people, even they weren't immune from this judgment. And this is where Paul's argument in Romans chapter 1 and 2 begins to hit uncomfortably close to home for us who are in the church as well. Because Paul's argument to the Jews was that you may call yourself God's people and love God's word. And boast in God and know his will and approve of what is excellent. And you may be sure of what is right and think that you are a guide for others. And that you are to be a light in the darkness. And that you have something to teach the world. But then Paul says, without denying that any of those things are true, he says, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And the same argument that he just used for the moral and religious person, he now applies to the chosen people of God. Paul writes, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Do you know God's laws but break them, Paul is asking. Not just outwardly in your actions, but inwardly in your heart and in your mind. And in the end, Paul's argument against all three groups is this. That at whatever level you are aware of God's reality and of his revelation, to whatever extent you are aware of God and his laws, you are responsible to them. The wild living pagan may know very little about God, but they know something through how God has revealed himself in creation. And so they are responsible to submit themselves to God for that. The morally upright person reveals within their conscience that within their conscience, they know the difference between right and wrong. They show through their ethical living that God's law is written on their heart. And so they are responsible to that standard. And the Jew even more so. They've had God's law revealed to them in a most profound way. Directly and specifically given to them by God. And as a result, they are subject to those words, to that law, in all of their fullness. And so in the end, it doesn't matter if you know a lot about God or a very little about God. We all know something through 
how he's revealed himself in creation through our conscience, our inner conscience, or through the revelation of the scriptures. And as a result, we are all accountable to God and to his holy law. And this is Paul's point in Romans chapter 1 and 2. That in regard to the law of God, we are all equally guilty before him. It doesn't matter how good you are or how bad you are. It doesn't matter how religious you are or how irreligious you are. It doesn't matter if you are chosen by God and considered a part of his people or not. In regard to his divine laws by which every human being will be judged... We all come up short. We all betray what we know to be true about God. And we are all deserving of his judgment as a result. This is the argument that Paul has been building thus far. And that he draws to a conclusion and summarizes for us in our passage today in Romans chapter 3. Where in verse 9, after having made his argument, Paul asks to the church in Rome, What then shall we conclude? Are we any better off? And then he answers his own question by insisting, No, not at all. For we, are all, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks... Which represents all of humanity. You you are either a Jew or you are a Gentile. A a Jew or a Greek. Those were the only two options uh, in that time in the world. Uh, Paul is saying, I've already made the argument that we are all under sin. And then with a devastating litany of questions or of quotations from the Old Testament. Paul paints a picture from the scriptures of the total depravity of humanity. He says, beginning in, in verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the effect of sin in our lives. It's a picture of our total human depravity. Which doesn't mean that we are all as bad as we could possibly be, but it, but it does mean that sin has affected every single aspect of our lives. It affects our legal standing before God, as there is no one who is righteous. It affects our moral standing before God, as there is no one who is good. It affects our minds, in that we don't understand God and His ways. It affects our motives to the point where we don't seek after God. It affects our wills so that we intentionally turn away from God. It affects our tongues so that our words are deceitful, poisonous, bitter, cursing, and leading to death. It affects our relationships with one another. We are swift to shed blood and we experience a lack of peace. And it affects our relationship with the Lord so that we have no fear of God. We don't respect his authority and his power. We don't believe in his words and his warnings. This is the effect of sin on our lives. 
It leaves us all utterly and without excuse, guilty before God and deserving of his judgment in our lives. This is how Paul concludes his opening argument in Romans. He says that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. We are all guilty before God. And while Eric and Jim in the past two weeks were both biblically faithful and culturally winsome when they spoke of the wrath and judgment of God over the past two weeks, how God's wrath towards our sin is currently being expressed in the handing over of us to our sinful desires, and how God's patience in his judgment is a a kindness that is intended to lead us to repentance, while all of that is true, it's not the full picture. God's wrath is being expressed in a more passive and gentle manner right now. And his judgment is being delayed in order to give people a chance to repent. And for those things, we should give thanks to God. But that will not always be the case. Because as Paul says in chapter 2, verse 5, our hard and impenitent hearts are storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's wrath against our sin is being revealed passively and patiently right now in order to give us a chance. But there is a day of wrath that is coming when God's full and righteous judgment against our sin will be revealed. Now, the Bible's language about this day is incredibly descriptive and varied. The Old Testament prophets and the psalmists describe this day as a day when the Lord will come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquities, where the Lord will execute great vengeance with wrathful rebukes. This day is imaged as a cup of wrath that the Lord will pour out and the wicked of the earth will drink down to its dregs. In the New Testament, the apostles describe this day of judgment and wrath as a time of perishing and eternal condemnation. They describe how the objects of God's wrath will reap destruction from what they have sown. It's described as a day of fear and trembling and punishment where everyone must give an account for what they have done. And God will come as a consuming fire to burn up all that is impure. Even Jesus, the Prince of Peace himself, spoke often and unapologetically about the coming judgment. He describes many being thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says that angels will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and will throw them into a fiery furnace. He describes a day when he will tell the wicked to depart from him into the eternal fire that is prepared for the devil and his angels. And while much of that language is imaginative and and allegorical, and there are all kinds of different ideas and interpretations about what that all actually means and how it will all actually come to pass and be applied, the point that I want to make to you is this. Who cares how it all works itself out? The scriptures aren't crystal clear about it because we don't need to know. 
But what they are unapologetically consistent and clear about from the very start to the very end is that a judgment is coming from God. And you do not want to be a part of it. Because no one will be able to endure it. And this, Paul is saying, is what we all deserve. In the end, he says in verse 19, that every mouth will be stopped and the whole world will be accountable to God. We will all be guilty. We will all know it. And there will be no defense. Who then shall be saved? The disciples asked Jesus in our gospel reading today when confronted with the impossibility of salvation. And Jesus' response to them was that with man, it is impossible. We cannot save ourselves. There is nothing that we can do in our own power, in our own wisdom, in our own strength to avoid this reality. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in love and forgiving of sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. As we heard in our Old Testament reading, life and death have been set before us. But in our disobedience to the Lord, we have all chosen death. And so in our hard and impenitent hearts, we are storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul delivers the bad news first. The good news of God begins with the bad news about humanity. If that's where this letter ended, we would have no hope. If this was the end of the story, there would be no good news. Now, by God's grace, this is not the end. In fact, it's only the beginning. And next week, we will turn a glorious corner into the good news of God concerning his son. But I do not want us to rush there too quickly. We shouldn't rush there because Paul didn't rush there. Paul has spent almost three chapters, nearly a fifth of his entire letter, building the argument about the predicament of humanity. Because it is essential that we understand it. So that's how we're going to end this morning, by considering why this is important for us to understand and what we ought to do in response to the bad news about humanity. So first, why does this matter? Why is it important to fully grasp the depth of our human depravity and the impossible predicament that it places us in? I have two answers for us this morning. One for the world and one for the church. First, for the world. The reason that the world needs to know this reality is simply this. That if they are not aware of their predicament, they will never look for an answer to their problem. If I don't know that I have cancer, if I don't have a diagnosis of that disease in my body... I will never go to the doctor to get it treated. 
And in the end, it will eventually destroy me. The message of our sinfulness and of God's coming judgment on sin is not a popular one in the world today. Nobody wants to hear this message. But in the same way that a doctor must sometimes give a difficult diagnosis to their patients, so must the church share this difficult news with the world. It must be told. Now, there are better and worse ways to talk about it. There are better and worse times to talk about it. There are better and worse places to talk about it. We can have this conversation with sensitivity and wisdom and kindness. We can have good bedside manner to continue the medical analogy. But if we truly believe that someone was in danger and we did not warn them about it and try to help them escape it, we do not love them. The world may not see it that way, and that is okay. My children, when they were little, they didn't see my love for them and taking them to the doctor's office to get their shots. But that is what was needed. And that is what love is. It is doing what is in the best interest of another, even when they may not understand it or appreciate it or be willing to accept it. We must proclaim to the world the message of God's judgment on sin. Because it is where the good news of God begins. The good news of God begins with the bad news about us. And that leads me to my second point, which is why understanding our human depravity matters for all of us who are in the church. The reality is that even within the church, this isn't a popular message. And many progressive churches are leaving the condemnation of sin and the warning of God's judgment almost entirely behind. But that is a tremendous mistake. Because without an understanding of our condemnation, our salvation has no meaning. Without an understanding of the reality of God's wrath, the cross gets emptied of its glory. If we get rid of sin and judgment, the gospel loses its coherency. Because after all, if we have done nothing wrong, then why did Jesus have to die? One doesn't make sense without the other. It's a bit like this. Imagine if you were walking down the street one day and you had headphones on and you were in your phone oblivious to the rest of the world around you as we've all witnessed and experienced in our own lives. And a bus is bearing down on you, about to plow you over, which will certainly end your life. And imagine that at that very last instant, someone forcefully tackles you out of the street and onto the sidewalk. Now, if you never knew that a bus was about to crush you, you'd wonder, why in this world, why in the world did this person tackle me? You'd be angry at the cuts and the bruises and the broken bones that you received from that tackle. And you'd probably consider filing a lawsuit against that person who performed the tackle. If you didn't know the danger that you were in, the rescue wouldn't make any sense. But if at the last minute you spotted that bus and your life flashed before your eyes, and then you were tackled out of the way and spared from certain destruction, 
can you be thankful for the cuts and the bruises and the broken bones that you received because they represented your salvation? And you'd be in eternal debt and gratitude to the one who tackled you out of the way. They would be your hero. And you'd want to give them a reward because they had risked everything in order to save you. Do you see the difference? If we don't know what we've been saved from, we can't appreciate our salvation. The cross doesn't make sense without our sin. You know, it's no coincidence that the Apostle Paul, who perhaps was more captivated and transformed by the message of the gospel than any human being has ever been, it's no coincidence that he identifies himself as the worst of all sinners. He knew the depths of his depravity in his own heart. And it made the good news of the gospel glorious to him. He gave his whole life in response to it. This is why the message of our depravity is so important. It brings coherence to the message of the cross and glory to the gospel of our God. So finally, how do we respond to this bad news about us? Well, we shouldn't avoid it or ignore it or minimize it or soften it in any way. Though that may be what we want to do and maybe the easier thing to do, it's not the honest thing to do. And it serves no good purpose to deny our reality. Instead, the first response that we ought to have to this message is to accept it. And to receive this divine diagnosis of our human condition as true. This, after all, is the very reason that God has given to us his law. Because it brings to us knowledge of our sin. He wants us to know this reality about ourselves. Tim Keller has said that the law is not a checklist that we are to keep but a benchmark that we fail. We were never meant to get it all right. It was meant to show us how far short we fall. Its intended purpose is to show us that reality. So let the law do its job in your heart. Martin Luther, in his commentary on the book of Galatians, said this, that the principal point of the law is to make men not better... But worse. That is to say that it showeth unto them their sin, that by their knowledge thereof they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken, and by this means may be driven to seek grace, and so come to that blessed seed, which is Christ. This is the proper response to the condemnation of the law. Receive it as true and let it drive you to God for grace and mercy. Now next week we'll get into Paul's explanation of what that grace and mercy is. If you already know this story, if you already know this good news, then the rest of our worship service today should lead you to humble confession, to deep repentance, and to glorious celebration and worship 
as you come to the Lord's table. If you don't know the rest of this story by chance, then please come back next week as we continue to tell it, because the best is yet to come. And if you can't wait till next week, if, then, then come see me after the service or call me today. But for all of us, throughout the rest of the service today and in the week ahead, I challenge you and I encourage you to reflect deeply on these things. To pay attention to all of the ways that you fall short of God's law. In your actions, in your attitudes, in your relationships with one another and with the Lord. And allow that conviction to lead you to repentance and to seek after the Lord. I've said this morning that the good news of God begins with the bad news about us. But that's not really true. This isn't actually bad news. Bad news is when your house is on fire and you don't have an alarm that warns you of it. So that you're never aware of the problem and you do not escape its danger. But it's actually really good news. When your home is burning and a fire alarm alerts you to the danger that you are in. The message of our sin isn't bad news. It's just true. And it's actually good for us to be aware of. So that we may cast ourselves on the mercy of God. May we do so today and for all of the rest of the days of our lives. For God's glory and for our good. Amen.